1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm not certain that, in fact, I am certain that that is not the right text on the screen. Uh, go ahead and flip through it. I don't know if we get to it eventually or not. Um, yeah, we, we do, actually. So back up, and um, I think I just may have put down too much. Beginning in verse 9 is where we're going to read. You see it there in the middle of the screen, 1 Peter 2, 9. I'm actually reading this, uh, and I think what is on the screen is from the Revised Standard Version. And we're going to begin in verse number 9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You're God's own people that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Interesting text to read, I know, on a Sunday morning. Jeremiah, now if we can look at this text, Jeremiah 29 and verse number four. Thus saith the Lord of hosts of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I've caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. Pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Father, we um, thank you for your presence and for your word today. Thank you, God, that you have called us as aliens and exiles in a world to which we do not belong. And you want us to conduct ourselves in a way that reflects appropriately the kingdom to which we are headed. So I ask Holy Spirit that in these next few minutes you would help me, anoint me. I've not earned it, I have not and do not deserve it. No man does, no woman does, but I need it today. So would you anoint me and help me to speak your word with clarity and simplicity? And yet, God, may I speak with the boldness and the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit. 
Pray, God, that you would captivate the attention of everyone in this room. Lord, help us to be better citizens, better exiles, and to reflect better the kingdom to which we long for, for which we long for, and to which we are headed. Help me to communicate your word today. Captivate the attention of every heart in this room today and help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's the title, Aliens, Elections, Exiles, and Boycotts. What dummy preaches on that on Sunday morning? I guess I uh, am the one. Author Richard Foster said this, to applaud the will of God and to do the will of God, even to fight for the will of God is not difficult until it comes at cross purposes with our will. Then the lines are drawn. It's easy to say I am pushing for and believing for and promoting the will of God until the will of God conflicts with my will. And then all of a sudden it becomes more difficult. The subject today has to do with the will of God, specifically how we live God's will out in a world that is becoming increasingly godless. Insikhan Akpan, that's a name, he's a scientist. Um, he wrote this, he said, scientists in Chile have discovered a fascinating new plant with properties hitherto unknown to science. Well, many animals are experts at mimicry and camouflage. Plants have never been observed to change their appearance beyond just imitating a single other species as a survival tactic. But one chameleon vine does just that. It is able to mimic several other species, changing shape, color, and more, just to blend in. Sadly, that seems to be the reality of much of the church world today. We have allowed ourselves to blend in, to be conformed wholly, to this world, even though scripture says not to be conformed to it. Now, on the other hand, there are those that have said we will just blend in, but on the other hand, there are those that are so opposed to this world that they have forgotten that God so loved this world that he gave us Jesus. So how to walk that balance is a challenge. What is God's will for our lives and the people of God in a culture that is godless and one to which we do not truly belong? Where does God draw the line for our interaction with this world? I want you to look again at Jeremiah 29 and verse 7. Seek the peace of the city, God says, where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. And then 1 Peter 2, 11, I wanna read it again as well. Beloved, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
that wage war against your soul. So let's begin with this. We are aliens and we are exiles in this world. Told you I was not talking about E.T., so for those of you who weren't listening and are now disappointed, this is not about UFOs or anything like that. We are aliens and we are exiles in this world. It's easy in America to be unsure how to interact with an ungodly world and culture if you're a Christian. There are two choices that we wrongly assume. One is to retreat from culture altogether. We do this to protect the purity of the community. We just pull away and we have nothing to do with the world to which we were supposed to and were called to reach. And the question that is begged, how in the world do we reach a world that we have withdrawn from completely and refused to engage? But the other option that some have assumed is to assimilate into culture. Under the guise of I am witnessing to friends, we compromise our convictions, or we have none at all, and then we have nothing of the gospel to help those who are around us. But there's actually another way forward, and it's the way that Scripture calls us to, and it's what it means to be an exile or an alien in this world. Let me give you the backstory to the Jeremiah text. The people of Judah because of their own sin, had been exiled in the land of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had marched in, he had destroyed the city, he had carried away captives, and there they would be for nearly seven decades. This is where the Daniel story, we will allude to in a few moments, the Daniel story comes from. This is where the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story comes from. These are Jewish exiles who have been carried away to Babylon. By the way, these were not the first exiles that we ever read about in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve were living in the garden and they were fellowshipping with God in the cool of the day, but because of their sin, they were placed into exile, kicked outside of the garden. And from that point on, being exiles was actually the story of the people of God. Abraham, the Bible says, wandered around looking for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. Israel spent 430 years in Egypt before they could return to their homeland. It is the story of God's people to be aliens and exiles in their culture. And every one of us is a spiritual exile. The Bible is clear that our citizenship is in heaven, but we are here right now. And so we are not in the land to which we ultimately belong, so we are all exiles and aliens here. And the story of the Bible is how God brings humanity out of exile and ultimately into their eternal home. In the New Testament, Peter writes, to Christians about being spiritual exiles. The people that Peter is addressing were people that were very confused. They had lived in the same place all of their life, but because of persecution, they now have had to leave their homes. They're part of what we call the diaspora, the dispersion. They were dispersed from their homeland and they were taken to other places. They had to flee for their lives because of persecution.
because of their commitment to their faith. They were, in fact, exiles physically, but Peter makes the point that they were exiles spiritually as well. Though they were Roman citizens, Peter says, but you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a peculiar people who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light to show forth the praises of God. They were citizens of heaven. They were living in the already and not yet citizenship in heaven, but yet still living in a godless world. This language of exiles is seen all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul says when we are away from our bodies, finally we are at home with the Lord, but as long as we are still in these bodies, we are away from the Lord and away from our true home. We are not, Paul says in Romans 12 too, to be conformed to this world because this world is not our home. We have been transferred, Colossians 1.13, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. So the Bible talks about exile all throughout. So what does being an exile in this world really mean? First of all, it does not mean that we don't care about this world. That's what some Christians think. Well, I'm a citizen of heaven. I just don't I won't give a flying leap about this world because I'm going to heaven someday anyway. John Piper says this, and I love this quote. He says, we exert our influence as very happy, broken-hearted outsiders. That's how we live in this world. We're very happy, but broken-hearted outsiders. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.14 says we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Why are we happy? Well, first of all, we're happy because our Savior said, blessed are you or happy are you when others revile and persecute you. That's why we're happy. I can see it all over your faces. You're just thrilled about it. We're happy because the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen, if you're happy about that. We are happy because we have been instructed in Scripture to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So we are happy people. Let me announce that to you again. We are happy people. But we are brokenhearted because Jesus deserves so much more than we offer him. Brokenhearted because there's so many that do not yet know him. Brokenhearted because we earnestly groan for the redemption of our bodies to be clothed in our heavenly home that's not made with human hands. You see, as Piper says, we are very happy, but broken-hearted people. Exiles are not passive. We do not, look, we don't smirk at our godless culture. We weep. We're not cynical. We're not indifferent. We're not uninvolved. The salt of the earth 
does not mock rotting meat. Amen, Pastor Kevin. We season it and we save it when we can. The light of the world does not bid good riddance to a dark world. We illuminate where we can, but we do not seek to dominate. Somebody say amen if you believe it. For too long, Christians who have been the salt of the earth have mocked the very world that we are supposed to season. We've criticized and we've ripped apart the very world that is dark that we are supposed to bring light to. Being a Christian in America in this godless culture does not end our influence, but it does rid us of our swagger. It doesn't mean we have no more influence, but it makes us realize we've probably been a little too arrogant here, maybe a little too cocky. We shouldn't get cranky that our country has been taken from us. We don't whine about the triumph of evil. We understand, look at me, this is not a new thing. Antioch was a godless culture. Corinth was a godless culture. Ephesus had idols to false gods. Athens was a place known for its immorality and its idolatry. Early Christians did not rant about secular humanism because the words of their master rung in their ears, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Caleb Mathis said, I love this quote, exiles live differently than everyone else around them because they understand the land beneath their feet is not their home. We spent more time trying to protect what is in our home and rant against it Instead of understanding this is not our home, but we want to take others to our home. And so we need to engage the godless culture, not bid it good riddance. Say amen if you believe that. So Daniel was one of those exiles in Babylon. He was a model exile. Let me share with you four things about being a model exile. Number one, be okay with being different. Daniel said, I'm gonna to have to eat a little bit different food. You don't have to give me the king's food. His prayer life was different. He prayed three times a day, no matter what his opposition said. His object of worship was different. He and the three Hebrew boys would not bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. He lived his life okay with being different by pleasing God first before others. But he didn't boast about it, and he didn't tweet about it, and he didn't tell everybody he would have not have tweeted, even if there was Twitter, all right? Just know that. He was just okay with being different. Secondly, he leaned on others in the community of faith. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they leaned on one another. They encouraged one another. Exile is difficult but exile alone is disaster. That's why we need one another. We need the body of Christ. That's why we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the matter of some because we need one another to encourage one another because we are living in exile. Thirdly, be a self-feeder. I love this little line, look at this. Faithful people do faithful things. 
The reason Daniel could still pray after the edict not to pray or you get thrown in the lion's den is because Daniel was faithful before there was an edict not to pray. If you wait to get your faithful on until things are tough, your faithful's not gonna get on. But if you do faithful things and you trust God and you worship and you pray and you study the word, then even if exile gets hard and ugly and persecution comes, faithful people continue to do faithful things. Say amen if you believe that and do excellent work. Daniel was in exile, but he did the best work. Everybody wanted Daniel. All the Babylonians wanted Daniel on their team. He had an excellent spirit. What is it different about that Daniel? We want him on our team. He had an excellent spirit. He brought his A game to everything he did. As Christians who are living in exile, we need to remember that Scripture says, whatever your hands find to do, even if it's for an ungodly boss, you're to do it with all of your might, all of your heart. You are to do it as unto the Lord. We are to be the best employees, the best citizens, the best neighbors. Even if we are the boss, we are to be the best boss. Even if your neighbor or your boss or your president does not align themselves with your faith or your values, you are not responsible to them. You are responsible to God. Amen? And number five, a good exile. They elevate God's plan beyond their present comfort. The second half of Daniel, Daniel's interpreting visions for the king. Those visions spoke of another kingdom that was coming. Daniel knew this was not his home. He was in exile, and he knew that the plan of God for this world must be that which he fervently worked for. The advice of Jeremiah in exile, look, don't retreat from the culture. Don't assimilate into it, but bless it. Look at this next screen. Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for its peace. For in its peace, you will have peace. We're not supposed to disengage the world completely. We are not to assimilate into the world. We are to pray for it. Pray for the peace of our nation. Pray pray for the blessing of our nation. Secondly, how should um, aliens and exiles in this world engage in politics? How many is this why you came this morning? You don't have to raise your hand. I know it is. Chuck Colson said before he passed, many Christians like most of the populace believe that the political structures can cure all our ills. The fact is, however, that government by its very nature is limited in what it can accomplish What it does best is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies. We've turned to politics too often to try to fix our world. I'm gonna read you this, I'll read fast. It's kind of a lengthy five paragraphs. Megan Phelps Roper had been on the picket line for the Kansas-based Westboro Baptist Church since the age of five. Everybody know who we're talking about? They would picket things all the time 
They're a very, very angry bunch of people. The members are notorious for picketing funerals of American soldiers because of their stance on war. They also publicly celebrated natural disasters and tragedies because it was an expression to them of God's judgment. Their exploits made the news worldwide. It wasn't until 2012 that Phelps Roper began to have a change of mind and heart thanks to Twitter. She zealously debated people on Twitter, but soon things changed. People I sparred with on Twitter would come out to the picket line to see me when I protested in their city. We started to see each other as human beings, and it changed the way we spoke to one another. It took time, but eventually these conversations planted seeds of doubt in me. Leaving Westboro, which included family and close friends, was extremely difficult. They never spoke to her again. She also believed she would be shunned by those she verbally fought with, and I wanted to hide from the world I had rejected for so long. People had no reason at all to give me a second chance after a lifetime of antagonism. Phelps Roper soon understood Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. She comments on today's partisan political bitterness and the people who influenced her. She said, I remember this path. It will not take us where we want to go. We have to talk. We have to listen to people we disagree with. I will always be inspired to do so by those people I encountered on Twitter, apparent enemies who became my beloved friends. They came to me with pointed questions, tempered with kindness and humor. They approached me as a human being, and that was more transformative than two full decades of outrage disdain and violence. Let me share with you five guiding principles for aliens and exiles in engaging politically. I'm borrowing here from Paul Heigerbart, but let me just give you these five things real quickly. I'm paraphrasing and borrowing. Number one, remember where your true citizenship lies. Choose kingdom over nation. Our heavenly citizenship should define us before our earthly one does. God and family and country is a wonderful slogan, but which keeps you up at night? The advance of God's kingdom or the direction of our country? If God's kingdom and its advance doesn't bother you, whether it's happening or not, you probably have chosen nation over kingdom. This reinforces that we are exiles, and exiles do pray for their country. We should seek peace and prosperity of our nation, and we should pray for our leaders, but always choose kingdom over nation. Would somebody please say amen if you believe that? Number two, make the word of God our highest aim. Choose theology over ideology or political ideology. There is not anything inherently wrong with ideology. But if you choose to give yourself to an ideology, it may shape your worldview, and I fear it does for most Christians more than the Bible does. Because I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not a prophet, but most Christians spend a whole lot more time on social media and watching the news, and that is shaping their worldview than they do reading the Bible. How many are really excited you came today? We might have to give cake pops to everybody, whether you're a guest or not, just so you'll come back. I don't know. 
Knowing what is at the heart of an ideology can be difficult and it requires discernment, but we must always start with the word of God and the wisdom of God. Number three, don't sacrifice your greatest calling. Choose witness over power. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we just preached it a few weeks ago. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are responsible to be representative of God's truth in this world. As ambassadors of God's truth, we should expect to be at odds with parties and with candidates at times. There were five distinctives of the early church. If you're not mad yet, this might be the final straw. Five distinctives of the early church. They were ethnically diverse and they valued people of all cultures and they extended them dignity as people created in God's image. Two, they were economically diverse and they shared all they had to take care of the poor. Three, they stood in strong opposition to infanticide and abortion. Four, they embraced a radical sexual ethic that called for purity, gender distinction, and the purity of marriage. And number five, they embraced a stance of nonviolence on both a personal and a political level. That was the early church, but here's the problem. Today, if you embrace number one and two, you're probably at odds with conservatives. If you embrace three and four, you are probably at odds with liberals. If you embrace number five, you are probably at odds with both. We should be involved politically, but we should constantly be evaluating the integrity of our Christian witness. The mission of Jesus has never been to transform the world through political systems, but God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Say amen if you believe that. Number four, do not, excuse me, stand in truth. Do not compromise. Choose influence over susceptibility. Paul's warning about being unequally yoked with unbelievers comes in here. It is easy to become influenced. We should seek out positions of influence, God-honoring influence. We should seek that out for ourselves, but should not be sold out to others. Christians, listen, who once fought vehemently for values of holiness and godliness have become enslaved to those who do not hold those values for the sake of political expedience. They have altered their own beliefs and their own values. Question is, what are Christians supposed to do? We've often heard that when we go to the ballot box, we vote for the lesser of two evils. And I'm not espousing to you that that is a wrong way to approach it. You've heard the phrase, you can hold your nose and vote. And I'm not espousing that that is a wrong way. What I am saying is you may hold your nose, but you don't have to hold their water. Amen, Pastor Kevin. You don't have to side with that which stands against the values that you hold. When we step into a voting booth, we have to make the best of a very non-perfect situation, but we must not, and indeed we cannot, lose our influence to witness by our susceptibility to compromise. And number five, cling to our trust in God. True trust 
over panic. Can I just say to you, no matter who is in office, God is on the throne. We're not the first people to think things are bad. The first century Roman Empire was under Nero, who was persecuting believers and promoting immoral paganism. Those who trusted God still, they trusted God over panic, and they turned their world upside down for Jesus. Remain principled and trust God because he is always faithful. And finally, how should aliens and exiles in this world engage economic pressure, very specifically boycotts? In America today, boycotts are the staple of nonviolent resistance and economic applied pressure. Conservatives boycott those who support values contrary to ours. And guess what? The liberals do the same. Usually we ask the question, well, will that be effective? But rarely do we ask, should we be doing it at all? To some Christians, that is an absurd question. Glenn Tinder, political philosopher, said that Jesus used non-resistance as his tactic. It's the tactic that Jesus affirmed. Now, non-violent resistance boycott assumes, listen, it assumes that evil is not deeply ingrained and it can be changed by a display of profound and moral culture. It assumes that all we have to do is apply a little bit of economic pressure and they will change, not realizing that what's really wrong is more deeply ingrained than that pressure. The gospel says the heart of man is desperately wicked and is only changed by the power of God and upon his power we must trust. Now certainly there are places, may have a place against a government or an institution that has coercive control. Certainly, the boycott of public busing in the 60s, for example, to, to protest seating segregation was an effective and a, a boycott that was necessary. But to use that on a corporation may trivialize its effectiveness. I'm not saying you should not do it. I'm saying you need to think about why you are doing it. The righteousness of God, folks, cannot be imputed by our tactics. Say amen if you believe that. Instead of loving rebuke against companies that we know are espousing values that are ungodly, we are instead using a form of moral extortion to try to do something that they would not willingly do on their own. Having convictions for not using certain product or associated with, with a particular business, that may be legitimate. That's a personal decision. But to use a boycott as a means to change them is probably inappropriate and certainly ineffective. Alan Noble says this, whether it is through votes or dollars, coercing someone to accept our position is nihilistic. It suggests that real change, change of heart and mind, is impossible or unlikely, and so the safest bet is to make it profitable to adopt our beliefs. Christians have every right and every responsibility to steward their own resources that God gives them and to discern what is best for them and their families, but to attempt to change behavior 
with those choices is a misguided use of that right. Boycott by its very nature is a public announcement that you are trying to change behavior using your resources. This may cut off opportunities to witness to others and it will not affect the change of heart. If we try to change moral behavior with economic power, listen, what happens if we lose economic power? If we try to change our culture with our pocketbooks, what happens when we have no position of influence economically? You see, the word remains. Speaking truth and public discourse is how transformation can come. Even if we are ridded of economic power, heaven and earth pass away, but his word does not. Say amen if you believe that. We should proclaim the rightness of our cause, not our power to cripple with economic coercion. Supporting and praising the good is an appropriate means but hoping to change evil through boycott will simply never happen. I need you to stand if you would. I've got a conclusion to give you, all right? Stand if you would. If half of you are happy that you came, I will feel like I'm a success today. Let's go back to the quote at the beginning. To applaud the will of God to do the will of God, even to fight for the will of God, is not difficult. Until it comes at cross purposes with our will, and then the lines are drawn. God's will is that we speak truth, and we live like exiles and aliens. This is not our home. This is not it. We are happy because we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. But we are brokenhearted that so many do not know the Jesus we love and the Jesus who at just the right time, while we were still sinners, died for them. I take seriously when the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I don't think I can change anybody's mind. There have been days, evenings, I thought my tweet would change the world. It doesn't help. Probably my boycott doesn't help. We don't have carnal weapons, we have spiritual weapons. We vote, but the ballot and politics are not our weapons. We make stewardship choices, but we know that our money can never transform a heart that has to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So our weapons are showing the world that we love them. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Our weapons are repentance and prayer if my people. Not if the world, not if the Democrats or the Republicans or the CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face. Then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin. Then I will heal their land. I sometimes feel like we want the land to be destroyed instead of healed. Jeremiah said, he was in wicked Babylon, but he said, pray for the peace of it, for in their peace you will find peace. Love, repentance and prayer, unity. Psalm 133, how blessed and sweet and beautiful. Can I just read it to you? Psalm 133, I want to get it just right. Psalm 133, if you have your Bibles, pull it out there real quickly. I won't wait because I just beat you. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head that runs onto the beard, the beard of Aaron. It's like the dew of Hermon that descends on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commands blessing, even life forevermore. When God's people are unified, God says, I'm going to command blessing right there. Let me close with this. Uh, Christianity Today had an article by musician Santa McCracken, and she said, I played softball in a community league when I was a teenager. We didn't know each other the first time we stepped out on the, under the lights together. We were strangers in gray polyester uniforms and orange baseball caps. At the start of our opening game, there was a palpable feeling of possibility. My teammates were talented, and the coach was tough. As he invested time watching us throughout the season, he positioned and repositioned us in different roles, playing to our individual strengths. As each player lived into her giftedness, there was more synergy and success. Today, instead of feeling like a single team, with diversely gifted players, we find ourselves in a cultural moment where it often feels like we're on different teams all together. It's true in society at large, but sadly it seems to be true inside the church. There was a time when the church was like a brand new softball team stepping out into fresh cut grass in late summer, individual differences obscured by what they were as a whole. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of the believers were together. They had everything in common. God is so committed to this unity that Jesus prayed specifically that they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus was not naive. He knew that finding unity is patient, slow work. And so she writes, let's open up our echo chambers and let's build bridges instead of moats. Let's listen for the still small voice of the spirit and attend to what he may ask of us. These are heavy times, but there's kingdom work to be done. Look at 1 Peter one more time for you are a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you are his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Father, make us that people, yes. aliens and exiles that proclaim the goodness of God. We speak truth, we pray for our nation, we pray for our leaders, we do get engaged, we vote, we campaign. But we know, Lord, that ultimately, only if a heart is changed, only if a heart is changed, is there hope. Help us, Lord, to live like very happy, broken-hearted people. People who understand that the feet are the ground upon which our feet 
walk is not ultimately the ground that we claim as home. And may we be faithful to live as exiles and aliens, I pray. In Jesus' name. Your heads bowed for just a moment. How many would say, I want to live more faithfully as an exile and an alien in this dark world? I want people to see Jesus in me. How many would raise your hand with me and say, that's the desire of my heart? Can we just end with this chorus? Let's worship him.